Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You're going to listen to an interview with Liz Carlisle, writer of the Lento Underground. She wrote a book about one of the pioneering organic companies in the US, Timeless Seeds. We're discussing the start of the company, how four farmers 30 years ago started Timeless Seeds in a time where nobody knew what organic was, let alone what lentils were, plus what was the key role of impact investors and why it makes so much investment sense to look at markets for crops which are key to bring a local ecosystem in balance. In this case, lentils, which fitted perfectly into a rotation for organic grain. But nobody knew what lentils were and most farmers saw them as wheat. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture. Investing as if the planet mattered. Podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! So welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Koen van Seyen, your host, and in the podcast of today, I'm joined by Liz Carlisle, writer of Lento Underground, where she followed and told the amazing story of Timeless Seeds, where a group of farmers started one of the pioneering organic food companies in the US. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. Happy to be here. So to start with a personal question and also with a question about Lento Underground and Timeless Seeds, how did you get into the regenerative agriculture space? How did you find this group of farmers? And in a very brief, for the people who didn't read the book, what did they do? And what what was a small summary of the story you told in the book? Yeah, well, you know, in a nutshell, I am originally from the same part of the U.S. as these farmers. I'm from Montana. Um, but I didn't start out wanting to be in agriculture myself. I, I was a country singer, so I was sort of telling the stories of farmers in rural America. And as I was traveling around the United States, I started hearing about how difficult it was to be a farmer, given the way the industry is currently structured um, with lots of large multinational corporations and just commodity markets. And so, of course, farmers getting low prices for grain and paying a lot of money for the inputs that they needed to use, the fertilizers and the herbicides and such. And so I was quite concerned about this and also quite concerned about climate change. And then I heard about an organic farmer from my home state who was doing all of this farming without chemicals and growing a more diverse rotation of crops 
and he managed to get himself elected to the United States Senate. And I thought that was pretty amazing. And so I, I quit working as a country singer and went to work for him at the Senate and really through him discovered that he was part of this 30-year effort that I then ended up um, chronicling in this book. And what draw you in the beginning to agriculture? I mean, you come from a, an agricultural state, but also a lot of people probably have left and, and went to pursue completely different careers and want to stay as far away from farmland as possible, but you didn't. That's right. And, you know, maybe you could put me in that category too as an 18-year-old going off to college. But I did get very concerned about climate change and about environmental issues as well as economic issues. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, in the United States in particular, um, the gap between people who have a lot of money and people who are working really hard and still can't make ends meet is just getting bigger and bigger during my lifetime. And particularly in areas like where I'm from, people work just as hard as they used to, but they can't put food on the table anymore, ironically, since they're growing it. <laughs> so I realized that um, agriculture was this fundamental human activity that really we needed to change in order to solve these environmental questions around climate change, as well as these economic questions around, um, you know, what were people going to do for a living in the place where I was from? It used to be extractive. It used to be things like mining. Um, obviously, we need to move beyond that. So I think I realized that agriculture was a lot more complex than I had understood growing up and that farmers are some of the people really on the front lines of trying to deal with these major environmental questions. So I started just wanting to learn a little bit about what farmers know. And if you had to name, let's say two things, because one is usually too complicated, two things that really, really surprised you of your home state of farmers that you maybe have known before, that you've seen before, but then you went, when you really dove into the work to, to write the book, what were the two things that really stood out and surprised you so much about the farming life and, and agriculture? Well, I, I think the two things would be that farmers were really concerned about what I would characterize as progressive issues, um, issues like climate change, issues that are global and you know far beyond just their own farm communities and understand that what they do bears on those global problems. And then also that they're incredibly sophisticated scientists. And so what I went to learn about from them was this system that they had devised to balance the nutrients that they were providing to their soil such that they would have a healthy and complete soil that could then support a healthy farm. So they were, you know, in these complex 10-year rotations between different kinds of legumes, pulse crops and grains and crops from other families and they understood you know what was helping to make phosphorus more available and just some really sophisticated science that they were doing with these systems um, just working with each other and using each other's farms basically as an experimental design and then in terms of the market because I read the book I really enjoyed it I will recommend everybody to to read and learn about I mean 30 years of of regenerative farming and and when it comes to selling there was a big issue finding a market that's willing to pay on your terms for in this case your lentils but also many other products how did they do that and where did they find i mean they're very sophisticated on the land but you need a very different um quality to also market and and sell it it's that is that where the, the added value of this company came from 
Yeah. So what you have is just a group of four farmers who've realized that they need to grow legumes. They need to grow, you know, crops in the bean and pea family in order to supply the nutrients to their soil that will allow them to farm in a healthy way without chemicals that are bankrupting them and also doing environmental damage. So they know they need to grow lentils, chickpeas, dry peas as part of their system. But the problem is they literally have nowhere to sell them. So they're in a commodity agriculture system where there's a a grain elevator, a storage facility that you can take wheat or barley, um, and that's pretty much it. Those are kind of their only options for crops that they can grow and sell. And they're not used to being in sort of the direct-to-consumer business or even the, you know, retail or wholesale business. They're commodity farmers. But they're so committed to having healthy farms and they want to stay on their land that they just decide, we're going to try to create a market for these crops that we know we need to be growing. So they start in just the simplest way possible, um, pooling their harvests and putting them in these 25-pound bags and then just driving around the state to the four natural food stores at the time. And, you know, pretty quickly got those stores signed up. But when you think about the scale of production that was necessary to convert agriculture in this region, four natural food stores were not going to cut it. So... They were total novices in business, but that was the time in the early 90s that they started going out of state and, you know, going to natural food shows and trying to find early, early, early social investors who would be interested in such a thing. And kind of bit by bit, we're able to build this business and purchase a processing facility and you know, get other growers into the the mix, and at this point, you know, are now quite successful with it. It's a, it's a fascinating story because it it basically flips the the normal model of starting a company of of looking at your market, etc., and looking what's missing. As they really took the soil and the ground as the basis, they were growing grain, but wanted to do it with less chemicals or, or probably without, and also in going organic and figured out as very sophisticated scientists that they were missing certain amount of things in their 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 terrain and were growing legumes to to fix that but then almost the focus of the whole organization or the focus of the became selling organic legumes instead of the grain which is still sold um but is sold to the commodity market organically or they also set up a company or they also set up a specific um channels for that Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Well, you know, sort of a sister company developed to do that. So Montana Flower and Grain is just, gosh, maybe an hour down the road from Timeless Seeds. And they've developed the whole business of a a better market for organic grains and including organic ancient grains and grains that are stone ground into flour. Um, So farmers have you know, both of those businesses that they can work with, as well as a couple of others um, that give them an option outside the commodity market where they could get a higher price for higher quality. Um, But, you know, the grain thing was always going to be easier because we have so many staple foods in the United States that we eat that are based on grains. People are eating cereals at breakfast, you know, (laughs) and so um, that was one of the first organic markets to take off was organic breakfast cereal. So, 
Um, you know, at this point, the organic grain companies actually have kind of a supply problem. They're looking for more farmers to grow, but we don't eat very many pulse crops. We don't really have a culinary tradition of eating lentils or chickpeas in the U.S. Um, that's changed a little bit with the hummus revolution of late. Yeah. <laughs> and we've seen more people interested in, you know, plant forward eating kind of like meatless Mondays type of stuff and more interest in, in ethnic foods. But at the time these farmers started trying to market lentils in the early 90s, Many of their own family members didn't even know what it was they were growing. Oh, they thought it was a weed, right? Yeah, they thought it was a weed. And then when they said lentil, people said, what is that? Or, um, oh, you know, I guess I've had lentil soup once or twice. But it was it was an uphill battle in terms of, you know, finding the markets. And, and you know, eventually they realized that there were real nutritional benefits as well and that just as their soil needed lentils, the American diet really needed some more plant-based protein too. And, and they started working with chefs, if I remember correctly, to, to really get it on the menus and to, to make sure that people at restaurants, etc., get a really high-end organic lentil. Yes, yeah. And, you know, one of the first chefs who got on board was actually from a rural area in Montana um, and was a huge leader. I know a lot of people, including potentially, I think maybe myself, the first time we ever ate lentils um, was at this restaurant and he served it as a side dish rather than in a soup, just kind of like a braised lentil dish. Um, so, yeah, I think chefs have been really important. Um, chefs like Dan Barber, who wrote the book Third Plate, has also been talking a lot about eating from the whole rotation and familiarizing people with what they might do with pulse crops, since it's not necessarily in their cultural tradition. And then also just educating people a little bit about what the benefits are, both to their health and to the planet. And then do you see... And now for the company, I imagine you're still following them a bit. What's the next phase for them? What's the... The, the what's next for for such a successful company but still relatively small what would be next do you think for this group of farmers yeah well you know they've been growing um in the last couple of years um faster than they had been i think an interesting lesson that i've learned is that it really takes a long time to build a solid foundation for a values-based business um and then i think then there's the ability to grow a bit faster once that's done so I think they've doubled the business in the past year or so. They, When I wrote the book, they had about 15 growers. So this was 2012 when I was researching the book. And now they have about 30 who grow for this business. So, um, wow. you know, pretty decent pace of growth just recently. And I think that's partly because of changing um, diets and the interest in plant-forward eating and the interest in ethnic food. Um, and it's also, it, it takes a while for growers to shift their system because you have to remember that farmers deal with incredible risk in their business and, and they don't just jump on a new bandwagon right away. So there were in the early days, some farmers who joined this group for philosophical reasons. They just weren't willing to farm in a way that they saw as extractive anymore or they were bankrupt from trying to do so. So they had no other option. Yeah, exactly. No other option other than not farming. Um, and I think in more recent years, what we've seen is that after, you know, a couple of decades of success, or at least stability, other growers who may not be as philosophically committed, but who would like to grow organic, are getting on board because they see this as a good business proposition. And they see that the market is stable, 
rather than, oh, this company starts up, I sell to them for a couple of years, and then they go away. Meanwhile, I've changed my whole growing system to grow this product. It's really scary to grow a crop that only one or two companies buy. Um, and in the early days of organic legumes, that was the case. So if the company goes under, if you're the farmer, you don't have anywhere else to sell it. So now that this has expanded a bit, it's not as risky for the, for the growers to get involved. And that now is really actually where the expansion, that's, that's the bottleneck, is more on the supply end rather than the demand end. Which is a great position to be in uh, as a company, obviously. Absolutely. And in the, in the early days, because you've written a number of, of, of those stories, the, the pressure on the earliest farmers that joined or basically set it up to, to join the conventional commoditized grain market has been enormous. What made them step away from that and, and basically set up something that was so completely unknown to so many people and what made them stick to it? Well, I think something that's important for anybody in the agriculture space to kind of recognize looking historically is that there are cycles of crises with the commodity industrial system. So, you know, at some point in time over a given period, it's it's going to be absolutely disastrous for the farmers involved. And the what happened in the 1980s, one of these crises, was that the fertilizer prices were high because fossil fuel prices were high. The grain prices were low, and that mostly had to do with sort of the international supply. And at the same time, there were three drought years within the span of four years. So many, many farmers across the grain belt in the United States had to make a big decision at that point. Many people went out of farming, and those who stayed often had to make some kind of big change. And because input costs were so high, people were thinking about ways to lower those input costs. And because the grain prices were so low, people were thinking about ways to get out of the commodity market. So you had all of these farmers interested in some kind of an alternative. And that it's not an accident that that is really when organic started to take off, um, particularly in the, the larger scale grain growing areas. There had been organic produce farming um, in places like California, Oregon, New England. But that's really when organic farming or low input sustainable agriculture, as it was often called at the time, took off. Because you did have all these people that really didn't see themselves being able to continue to earn a living in farming. Oh, that's a very different situation from, from what we are now, that almost the, the demand is bigger than the supply. <laughs> right. Well, and that is just, that's just policy. That's just um, artificial money propping up an archaic system. What do you mean by that? Well, we have uh, farm programs in the United States, federal government programs that support farmers um, in some important ways, but also do too much to prop up an old system. So people can literally not earn any profit at all on their farm, but still earn a living because they're getting these payments um, to do kind of the old commodity crop input dependent farming. And this whole system was devised in the Great Depression, you know, almost 100 years ago to help farmers recover from that time. And it hasn't been adequately updated since. So you know, the reason that we don't see a faster conversion, I think, to regenerative agriculture is that our policy hasn't really caught up to what we know um, scientifically, to what growers know, to what consumers want. Uh, so that is probably the biggest barrier right now in the United States. And, and what would you, if you had a magic wand, what would you change 
uh, how would you shape uh, the policy um, for, for, let's say, the next decade or next 15 to 20 years? I think one of the biggest levers is crop insurance, because that's now the main form of producer support coming out of the United States Department of Agriculture. And, and currently, as I said, it's sort of propping up these systems that are not sustainable input dependent grain monoculture. And I would just shift the way that crop insurance is uh, how it functions, what it pays for. And one idea that's been floated by many people is why don't we give people lower crop insurance premiums for using regenerative practices that fundamentally reduce their risk? I mean, it's a good from an insurance point of view, it's a great policy. Why don't we give people lower crop insurance premiums for planting cover crops, for example, which um, are crops used just to feed the soil and improve the soil organic matter, and they also catch nutrients that would otherwise go into waterways. Um, we should give people lower crop insurance premiums for rotating crops um, or for reducing tillage in um, innovative ways. Um, so we could use the whole crop insurance system to actually incentivize the things that reduce risk and improve the system for the public. Um, I think we could just do a much better job of aligning the public incentives with the public benefit, because agriculture, of course, has a public benefit as well as a private benefit. Right now, the public programs often just feed into private benefits. What we need to do is better restructure them so they're literally uh, much better supporting the public benefit piece of agriculture and the, you know, the foundation that keeps everybody farming and everybody's land healthy and the water healthy and all these good things. And when you look at the investor point of view or the, the role of the investor, what has been the role of, of impact investors or investors in general or social investors in, in timeless seeds? And um, what would be the role? But it's the second question in, in the future of companies like this, where, where do you see the biggest added benefit if you, if you would be a, an impact investor? Well, impact investing has been absolutely critical to Timeless Seeds because they were so ahead of their time that they had absolutely no access to any kind of conventional financing. David Oyen, who's the CEO and founding farmer, tells this great story about going to his local bank in the early 90s and saying, you know, we have a customer in California, they want 300,000 pounds of lentils, and we need a loan for $40,000 were an organic lentil company. And the banker had two questions. What's organic and what's a lentil? <laughs> so like conventional financing was not going to happen for this company. <laughs> and that's true for a lot of people in the regenerative ag space. Even now, um, it's gotten better than that now. But um, Timeless has operated with a lot of, you know, unconventional capital with social investing kinds of capital. At that time, it was before Kickstarter. They just literally went and knocked on the doors of friends and neighbors and like-minded people who were interested in this bigger picture of regenerative agriculture, whether or not they were farmers or stood to benefit in any real direct way from the development of this particular business. Um, and I think they sold like $1,000 shares to get into this original mill. Really crowdfunding. Really crowdfunding. Yeah. And that, you know, then that was the model again when they moved into their current plant in 2008 at a little bit larger scale. And they kind of tapped into the slow money network at that time. But um, I think you'd find lots of similar stories of other companies that are 
similarly trying to support what the natural system needs by creating markets for the things that need to be part of these systems, all those companies have a story like that of creative ways of, of finding capital from social investors. And I think, you know, the benefit is that this is a group of people who just look at the economy differently. It's people who are investing in fundamental value, things like soil health and climate mitigation, rather than just speculative value, which unfortunately, I think is kind of the majority of the conventional economy. You know, it's, it's not real. It's on paper, it's there for maybe a few decades. But um, we obviously can't pretend that the world's going to continue to function that way. We're going to, our planet's going to burn up. So I think, um, you know, impact investors are critical in that they just see value in a completely different way. And, and when you look at, let, let's imagine there's a, there's a gigantic group of, of smart impact investors listening to this podcast. What would be your advice to them? They are interested in the space of, of food, of agriculture. They haven't probably made investments yet and they they read the book and they're really interested like how can i find the next timeless seed or what could be my role there where where can i add value and of course also make smart investments what would be your uh, your place to start in in some some advice i think get to know a place really well and understand what that place needs because regenerative agriculture is all about fitting the agricultural system to the place rather than having this one standard model that's imposed all over the world, you know, which is kind of the Achilles heel of the green revolution or industrial agriculture. So obviously, you know, if you deeply studied the Northern Great Plains, Montana, Idaho, you would find that investing in legumes is a really important part of the green economy in that area. Um, you know, another thing that's important in a lot of places is pastured livestock, um, because we obviously need to shift away from this concentrated animal feeding operation basis for our protein system. Um, so part of that is about plant-based protein, and part of that is about a totally different system for animal protein that's not uh, doesn't have such a terrible impact on the environment and on human health. Um, so any place that you get to know is going to have this missing piece of the puzzle for a regenerative agricultural system. And that's where I think impact investors can help accelerate that transition, um, which needs to come by creating those markets and helping farmers be on the vanguard and helping to accelerate this process where farmers can see their neighbors do it and succeed and get involved. I think that that's really good advice because so many investors are looking for generic models, etc. But all of this, I mean, regenerative agriculture, like you said, is really place-based and you need to really, really well understand the local circumstances and the context. And I, I wanted to end with a question for you. What's next for you? You wrote this book in, or you did the research in 2012. It was published, I think, a year later. Um, you still are active in the regenerative agriculture movement. Is there anything you can say what you're working on or worked on for in, in the last bit or what you're going to work on next? Yeah, well, I, I'm very interested to continue learning from farmers. I feel like I have just started that process. <laughs> um, and of course, farmers are innovating new things in this in this area every day. So I, I spend quite a bit of time in Montana and other parts of uh, farming country in the US sort of keeping tabs on what's going on and doing a little bit of writing here and there, maybe launching another larger project soon. Uh, 
Um, and then the other thing I'm really passionate about is teaching. Um, I teach at Stanford. I work with young people who are first year students in university and also, uh, you know, master students and PhD students. And I have a lot of hope for this next generation. And that is such an exciting piece of the work too. And, and particularly to connect some of these young people thinking about sustainability with some of these elders in these agrarian communities who've thought really deeply about sustainability in their own place. Uh, so to kind of be that bridge builder and come up with project-based classes and things like that, that's just been fantastic. Is that something that you see as a, as a challenge as well as an opportunity that this big transition in, in generations that we're seeing now, I, I imagine it's also in the US, at least here in Europe, a lot of farmers are getting close to their retirement age and, and a lot of young people want to get into farming, but the, the transition both in language, culture, I mean, is so different that it's going to be probably a rocky transition if we don't manage it well. Do you see that as well in, in the US? Yes. I mean, land access is really the problem. The young people here who want to be farmers typically are not people who come from farming families. And it's difficult to access land. If that does say something, though, or not. It does. It does. I think what it says is that the people who want to farm aren't necessarily looking to do it the same way that the generation before the one before that did. They're inspired for these bigger, they want to fix climate change and they want to grow healthy food for people and they're interested in regenerative agriculture and so they need access to land and actually what's been interesting is to see that some people you wouldn't think have a lot in common you know say a young urban progressive and a retiring farmer from a conservative rural community many states away sometimes that actually works out because They're, they share something. They share some value around the importance of taking care of land. Um, but we need to develop a lot more tools to make it possible for that transition to really work and for both sides to feel satisfied with it. Do you have an idea about some of those tools? Because I, I have heard a few times in, in these podcasts that the same, the same wish and the same uh, struggle that people have. Are, are there any tools you've seen or you come across that are are working to or slowly piloting maybe uh, a solution to that? Well, um, we have a good one here. There's a nonprofit organization called FarmLink um, that I think is doing a pretty good job. And there are a couple of people trying to help with financing um, for these young farmers who are starting with no capital, basically. But I think this is another area where those efforts are going to need some support from policy and um young farmers are just going to need better terms to start on. And there's a little bit out there. There's a beginning farmer and rancher program that's been very helpful from the United States Department of Agriculture. But in general, these farmers start at a disadvantage with all of these support programs that I talked about earlier. So there'll need to be some shifts in policy as well as all this activity, um, you know, in, in our world <laughs> from investors and from nonprofit organizations trying to figure it out. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it needs to come from, from all sides. I want to thank you so much for your time and I'll definitely be checking in with the next big project when, when that's ready to, to be launched. Thank you so much. And, and I'll be listening to the podcast. Really appreciate the invitation. You just listened to an interview with Liz Carlisle, writer of Lento Underground. Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. 
That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.